This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is UCLA law professor Joanna Schwartz to discuss her recently published book, Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. Professor Schwartz, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Professor Schwartz's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, listeners are likely familiar with the names Michael Brown, George Floyd, Eric Gardner, Freddie Gray, Brianna Taylor, and Amadou Diallo. The gentleman of the New York Police Department shot dead in 99 after expending 41 rounds. According to the Washington Post nonprofit Mapping Police Violence, since 2013, when experts first started tracking police shootings, last year was the deadliest year on record with 1176 law enforcement gun deaths, or more than three people per day and nearly 100 per month. On average, the police shot 1,131 dead between 17 and 22. Regarding fatal shootings in 22, 18% were related to nonviolent offenses, 11% in cases which no offense was alleged, 9% for mental health or welfare checks, and 8% for traffic violations. In 22, only 31 were related to an alleged violent crime, and 30, 31%, excuse me, were related to an alleged violent crime, and 32% of the cases, the persons were fleeing before they were killed. Blacks were three times more likely to be killed by police than whites. However, in, for example, Minneapolis and Chicago, black shooting deaths are respectively 28 and 25 times more likely than white. Since 13, California has been has seen a 29% drop in police killings, while Texas has seen a 30% increase, despite the fact that over the 10-year period ending in 18, California has experienced a greater per capita decrease in homicides in some than in Texas. Finally, I used to worry that after doing healthcare policy in D.C. for over 25 years, I may have, it may have left me with a lost sense of outrage. This book proved me wrong. With me again to dis- discuss Shielded, or effectively, Who Polices the Police, is the author, UCLA professor, Joanna Schwartz. So with that, uh, Joanna, I appreciate your time again. I would want to start... Um, you, you, your, your Baldwin quotation, I have to note, that opens the book, that was altogether appropriate, so I'll just note it quickly here. He, he noted, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. So I thought that was um, well selected. So let's, let's get into this. You begin several chapters with descriptions of police shootings and other forms of excessive force. You note cases involving Orney Norris, James and Flossie Monroe, Alonzo Grant, Tony Timpa, Andrew Scott, and David Colleague, and that's Colley, and that's just through the first 70 pages. Can you provide an overview of one or two of these you believe serve as representative examples, particularly as they relate to how these cases were subsequently addressed? Sure. Uh, and I think that I have so many stories in the book because I think it's important to understand police violence and misconduct beyond the very disturbing 
facts and figures that you described in your introduction <laughs> from the Washington Post's project, which focuses on people killed by police. Right. And yes, the fact that that more than 1,100 people uh, are killed by the police uh, every year on, on average, give or take, is a cause for tremendous concern. But we also have to take account of the fact that there are many, many times more people who are uh, have force used against them that does not kill them mm -hmm. uh, or have their rights violated in some other way. And so part of my goal in telling these many stories um, is in part to try to illustrate that there are so many other ways in which people can violate rights and people who readers and listeners have never heard of. I mean, beyond, again, the people you mentioned in your introduction mm -hmm. of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and many other names that have been put on um, signs and people have gone to the streets to demand justice. There are many, many, many others whose stories I tell in the book about whom uh, people have never heard. So um, I begin the book with uh, the story of Henri Norris, who you, whose name you just mm -hmm. uh, mentioned. Henri Norris um, was living in a small town uh, on the outskirts of Atlanta, and he lived alone. Uh, he had lived in the same home for decades and decades. He'd raised his kids there. Um, he and his wife were lived there together. He worked in a nearby rock quarry. Um, he was now living alone. He he uh, he said that he and his wife were still married, but they got along better living separately. And so they just saw each other on Sundays at church. And he was in his home um, watching the news in the evening when he heard uh, it, what it sounded to him like his his house was under siege, that there was there was incredible sounds uh, coming from um, from the outside of the house in. And what was happening was that a task force, a drug task force, was using battering rams to smash open all three doors of his home. They weren't supposed to be smashing all three doors of his home. They had a they had a search warrant to do a raid of a house that was about 40 yards away. Um, that house was the house of a known drug dealer, someone who had been under investigation for a couple of years. Um, and that was what the search warrant was for. And the house that Henri Norris lived in looked nothing like the house that was the subject of the search. 24 officers had been had been uh, told about what, the, what was going to happen with the search. They all had available to them the search warrant. None of them read it all the way through. And when they got to the location, they went to the completely wrong house. Instead of the house that was white with broken down cars in front of the yard, they went to the house that was yellow with a with a well-maintained yard with a different number on the on the mailbox than on the target of the search. But um, that is what brought them to Henri Norris's home. And when they got there and when they smashed open all the doors of their of Norris's home, Norris came out of his room wondering what was going on. They yelled at him with guns pointed at him and ordered him to the floor. Henri Norris is a, was at the time a 78-year-old black man wearing a 
you know, a, a baseball cap and a windbreaker. And he was more than twice as old as the subject of the search. They held him anyway. They forced him to the ground, even when he told them that his knees were in bad shape and his heart was in bad shape. And uh, they held him there for for a while. Now, luckily for Henri Norris, they did not kill him. They did not shoot him. Um, they eventually led him out of the house in handcuffs. And when they realized that they had gotten to the wrong house and broken into the wrong house and terrified the wrong man, they turned off their video cameras one by one. So Henri Norris wanted some manner of justice for what had happened to him, for the violation of his rights. He was terrified. He filed a civilian complaint with the with the officers' departments. Nothing happened with those complaints. There was never any possibility that these officers were going to be criminally prosecuted for this, for entering the wrong home. So what the only path really left available to him was to file a lawsuit. He brought a law, found a lawyer, which itself um, was was a, a bit surprising. A miracle, given, yes, yes. Uh, given how hard it is to find lawyers um, to bring these cases. Uh, but he found a lawyer, brought the case, and um, and his case was dismissed. Uh, he received nothing in the courts for, for what happened to him. He received nothing anywhere besides a few um, of the sheriff's deputies nailing the doors back to his home. And the reason he received nothing in the courts was a legal doctrine that is called qualified immunity. Um, it's been in the press a bunch um, in in recent years, but um, Henri Norris's case explains, I think, why people uh, are so outraged by the, the doctrine. It says that even if you violated someone's constitutional rights, and even if a police officer has violated someone's constitutional rights, they get this protection of qualified immunity if there's not a prior court decision with nearly identical facts holding that conduct to be unconstitutional. And even in Henri Norris's case, there was a prior court decision from that very same court that said it was unreasonable to enter into the wrong home and then hold someone, um, detain someone without doing the proper investigation to, to make sure that they had the right person. But the, that prior decision was unpublished, which means in, in court terms that it's available online, but it's not in the actual books that hold cases, books that, as a side note, nobody actually reads. Everyone reads things online. But nevertheless, that's a distinction in this um, circuit, in this court system. And so that prior decision couldn't clearly establish the law in Henri Norris's case, and his case was dismissed. Okay, thank you. We're going to get into qualified immunity in a moment. I'll just cite your overall comment at page 52 on qualified immunity. Officers can, quote unquote, officers can stop, arrest, search, beat, shoot, or kill people who have done nothing wrong without violating their constitutional rights, close quote. So let's get into what we thought are or should be possibly legal protections. And your book largely focuses on uh, perver- basically the perversion of two legal provisions, the Fourth Amendment and Section 1983 of the 1871 Civil Rights Act. I'll just note uh, relative to the Fourth Amendment, and I did appreciate you're pretty blunt in, in, in this volume as it relates to the Fourth Amendment or reasonableness, which you'll get into. You write at page 52. Officers can um, 
uh, well, I'll just I'll just stop and 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 say, um, could you explain what these in theory protections are in the Fourth Amendment and Section 1983? Sure. So, Section 1983 was the statute that people use to sue for federal constitutional violations. Um, it's a statute that was enacted by the by Congress in 1871. So it was following the Civil War during Reconstruction when um, Black Americans were being tortured and killed, particularly in the South. And the state courts and the state government was doing nothing to intervene. Um, and, and many state actors were participating in the violence themselves. So this statute gave... Um, people the right to sue government officials for constitutional violations. Um, through a variety of decisions by the Supreme Court, very few uh, cases were ever filed under this statute, Section 1983, um, until 1961, when the Supreme Court first made explicit um, their view that the statute could be used to sue for constitutional violations. And so it's really since 1961 that this um, has been a vehicle to um, seek justice when people's rights are violated by the police and other government officials. The Fourth Amendment is the protection in the Bill of Rights um, that are that is most often used um, in cases involving the police. And the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Um, so uh, that sounds like a powerful protection. Um, it's a clearly an important protection to the founders who, who included this in the Bill of Rights. But the way in which the Supreme Court has interpreted the protections of the Fourth Amendment um, and that unreasonableness term is, is not in terms of what's unreasonable for a person to experience, um, but instead, what is what is unreasonable for an officer to do? And so that does mean, um, as you quoted, that that an officer can stop someone, search someone, arrest someone, assault someone or kill someone who has done nothing wrong. But if the officer believes under the circumstances it was reasonable, um, then they have not violated the person's constitutional rights. Correct. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. that was very clearly uh, defined. So thanks again. Let's go to uh, qualified immunity. Um, this is uh, this was this was a created legal provision. Could you provide a, a, an explanation of what that? I mean, the, the phrase itself is suggested, but if you can um, explain, and then um, and in fact, throughout the book, you cite this is as the defense. Uh, uh, police officers' departments have used successfully time and time again. So maybe if you could provide an example of where uh, qualified immunity played. Sure. So uh, qualified immunity is a defense that was created by the Supreme Court in 1967. So remember that the Supreme Court first first made clear that people could sue for constitutional violations under Section 1983 in 1961. Mm -hmm. So it was six years later that the court said, well, yes, you can sue for these constitutional violations, but officers have this thing called qualified immunity. And at the time, the Supreme Court said, look, we need to give officers um, 
some flexibility here. We don't want them to be charged with dereliction of duty if they if they don't act and then you know brought you know named in a lawsuit if they if they do and to suffer those consequences when it's a close call. So let's have them have this qualified immunity. In in the Supreme Court's definition in 1967, when they first created the defense, they called it a good faith immunity. So if an officer thought they were following the law, but it turns out that they weren't, that was where this uh, qualified immunity came into play. But in the subsequent decades, the Supreme Court has repeatedly strengthened the protections of qualified immunity. So it now looks nothing like a good faith protection. Uh, it no longer turns on whether an officer acted in good faith. In fact, they could act in bad faith and still get qualified immunity. Um, instead, it turns on whether the officer violated what the Supreme Court calls clearly established law. And as I described regarding Henri Norris's mm -hmm. case, that prior decision has to be nearly identical to the facts of the first case in order to clearly establish the law um, to the Supreme Court's satisfaction. So Henri Norris's case is, is one example. But another example I talk about in the book um, is the case uh, by a man named Alexander Baxter. He was, um, he, he burgled a home in Tennessee. Uh, he, the, they, they called the police on him. He surrendered. He sat down, put his hands in the air, said, you caught me. And the police, nevertheless, after he had surrendered, released a police dog on him who attacked him and uh, caused a bit of damage, quite a bit of damage under his arm. He brought a lawsuit. The case was dismissed on qualified immunity. That court had a prior decision that said it is clearly unconstitutional to release a police dog on a person who has surrendered, to use force against someone who has surrendered. But in that case, the person had surrendered by lying down. And the court that was hearing Alexander Baxter's case said there were enough factual distinctions between this prior case where a person surrendered by lying down and Alexander Baxter's case where a person surrendered by sitting with their arms in the air that the law was not clearly established and the officers were granted qualified immunity and Alexander Baxter received nothing. Okay, thank you. I I, I will say uh, I, I do want to go to one other example you give, and I think there's this was a, a chapter related to suing the city government and this uh, concern Vallejo, California. Um, and this was this I bring this up because this was just not a single policeman's behavior. <laughs> this was the police department in Vallejo for yeah. a long while. So um, I think it would be instructive. Um, because this is this is this is the other dimension of instead of suing a specific officer, uh, this this was this concern suing the city government. So can you explain the Vallejo, California uh, case? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it's important. Um, the, the the goal in this book is to make clear that although a lot of public debate has been focused on qualified immunity, qualified immunity is by far. Uh, is 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 just the tip of the iceberg, and there are so many other barriers to relief in these cases. Um, oftentimes, many times, perhaps all the time, uh, incidents of in of police misconduct and violence is is not or should not be attributed just to the single officer. There are usually or often 
structural um, contributors, that it's not just the officer acting alone, but there is a way in which the department um, had a culture that encouraged this, didn't discipline officers. Um, and it's as difficult, if not more difficult, to get past the barriers that the Supreme Court has put into place to sue local governments than it is to get past the barriers of qualified immunity. And I try to illustrate that with um, with the story of Vallejo, California, which is a department, um, Vallejo is, is about 30 miles east of uh, Oakland, and Vallejo has had a long-standing problem with its police department. I focus on the years of uh, 2010 to 2020 in the book. During that period of time, there was a group of officers, they referred to themselves as the Fatal 14, who had killed you know, more than one person, um, one or more people um, in the course of their work. This is in a department of 100 people. Um, and they would uh, bend corners of their badges in right. celebration yes. after, after killing people. Um, and there had been in 2012, I tell, I tell the story of, of one, of one um, killing um, in Vallejo, the officer who was involved uh, had killed one person in the month before and one in the month after. So three people killed three people in the month, in the year 2012, in a three month period. But um, when the lawsuit, <coughs> when, whenever there have been lawsuits um, challenging the city's conduct, um, those claims against the city have been dismissed because there's not enough evidence of a culture or a cause uh, of city misconduct in the view of the courts. And it's not a problem of the judges in Vallejo, um, particularly, it's that the that the legal doctrine um, is just too hard to get around. And I will note that within the past couple of weeks, um, the California Department of Justice has um, said that they're they're you know demanding a a uh, consent decree with Vallejo, you know, after having investigated. Um, you know, years and years of misconduct. The the state government, the state Department of Justice, is is stepping in. But this is, you know, this is not a problem that state departments of justice or the federal Department of Justice uh, is able to handle on their own. Um, they cannot be investigating every single department um, across the country for these kinds of problems. And the way in which the Supreme Court has made it so difficult to bring cases against local governments, it really means that it's only federal, <laughs> excuse me, federal and state government that's able to step in and and hold these local governments to account. Okay, thank you. So this is the police officer, uh, Nick uh, Tartaglioni, if I'm pronouncing his surname correctly. You also Tartaglione. Get... Yes. No, no, that was that was a different that was a different case, but. That's that's a uh, Leone is in, in Briarcliff Manor, New York. Okay, excuse me. Um, no, no, sorry. But but you give other examples, sort of police office, police departments. In some, you talk about the Indianapolis police regarding strip searches, and the LA police department regarding chokeholds. So they're um, uh, similar. Um, there are other explanatory reasons. Um, you, you have a specific chapter on variation by uh because of you know 
judge how judges uh, try these cases, how juries interpret the evidence. Uh, other reasons you prov- you have some some lengthy discussion on, and we touched upon uh, inability of attorneys to collect fees for this work, which of course makes it, as you said up front, difficult for anyone, including Mr. Norris, to find an attorney. Um, and you also make note, have a lengthy, somewhat lengthy discussion about police officers' ability to avoid ever paying for settlements or judgments out of pocket. My sense of all this, and would you agree, there, there doesn't seem to be much of a learning curve here. Um, <laughs> everybody is in some way, shape, or form. There are many reasons for this. Is a whole your 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 book is a list of reasons um, that largely leaves um, this behavior immunized. Um, which, which of these four that I noted would you like to highlight again, judges, juries, uh, uh, police officers ability to avoid, uh, out of pocket expenses and paying uh, legal fees? Well, I mean, I think that they are, <laughs> they're all complimentary. They are, yes. Yes. They are all complimentary. Um, I think that, um, I, I, I think that, that I, I, I actually, um, want to to point to um, the failure of local governments to gather and analyze information about these cases, um, if if you don't mind. Um, no, please, I and that, that leads into your discussion tra- at the end of the book of what New York City's been doing, the New York City Police yeah. Department. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that look, judges and juries, um, you know, make it difficult for people to win in these cases. And I think that that, you know, denies them um, justice in these cases. And, and I think the fact that officers don't feel financial consequences, um, you know, it means that there isn't that financial sting, but I, but I actually think in, in my ideal system, uh, I wouldn't have officers pay out of pocket in these cases. Um, You know, these are, you, 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 you know the medical world fall far better than I do, but we don't have doctors pay out of pocket in these kinds of cases. Right, um, right. They pay insurance. Yes, that. correct. Yes. yes. But, but um, if you're not going to have officers pay out of pocket, then you need to make sure that they are, they are taking account of this information and doing something to – for, prevent something similar from happening in the future. Um, and I think that the place where police departments are really falling down is in not learning from these lawsuits. Um, and I actually, I've done some research um, in, the, in the medical, in hospital context, um, and I know there's a whole separate conversation you could have about hospital safety and patient safety, but I think that, that hospitals do a better job than police departments do, um, at least at trying to look at lawsuit files, trying to learn what, what happened in these cases. And really very little of that, almost none of that happens in local police departments. Instead, they treat these lawsuits as simply the cost of doing business, and they don't pay attention to how often individual officers are sued and what the allegations were and what the evidence is that comes out in the case. Um, and what the and what the outcome was of the case, and without that kind of information, it's really impossible for 
a police department to make any kind of informed decision about how to prevent something similar from happening in the future. One thing you do note, uh, one recommendation you do note is that uh, over time, these costs have to be budgeted by uh, city agencies or police departments. So it, it be, so these costs become real um, and that might uh, have an effect, a positive effect. Um, I did mention uh, New York City. You did have some discussion. There's been some back and forth. I wasn't crystal as, as to the outcome, but you evidently there's been some discussion about ends to uh, calls to end qualified immunity. Mm. Um, what success has that had New York City or elsewhere? Yeah. So since 2020, there have been these calls across the country to end qualified immunity and Congress or the Supreme Court certainly would have the power to do that um, and, and neither have. Um, but but state uh, legislatures are getting into the action also. And Colorado and New Mexico and New York City have all passed laws that provide that people can sue for violations of the state constitution um, under state law and explicitly provide that qualified immunity is not a defense to that state law um, cause of action. So this is different from it's sort of creating a parallel to Section 1983, um, the federal statute that was passed after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's ironic, uh, I would say, um, that, you know, Section 1983 was enacted after the Civil War um, because there was no meaningful remedy in the state courts for these kinds of violations. Now, 150 years later, um, there's no or there's limited meaningful remedy in the federal courts. And so the state law, state legislatures are stepping in to provide um, this alternative. And um, Colorado's bill went into effect in 2020, New Mexico in 2021, and I believe New York City was also somewhere around 2021. Um, and we're waiting to, to see what, what the effects are. Um, opponents to these kinds of um, statutes have been effective in other parts of the country by saying that without qualified immunity, officers would be bankrupted uh, for reasonable mistakes made on the job and no one would agree to become a police officer. And a lot of my research has uh, shown that those claims don't bear any relationship to reality. Um, you know, that qualified immunity isn't necessary to protect these officers um, from frivolous lawsuits and is not protecting them from bankruptcy. There's other laws in place that, that do this. But now we actually have three locations where uh, there has been this um, this kind of law passed. And I, with other uh, with two co-authors, um, we are we are trying to um, investigate exactly what the effects are, are of these new statutes, how often claims are being raised um, under them. But I think it's fair to say that there is no evidence that the sky has fallen in Colorado and New Mexico and New York City. Um, no evidence that officers are being bankrupted uh, for good faith mistakes in those jurisdictions. Um, and uh, so we're, we're still waiting to figure out exactly what the effects are of these statutes. Um, time will tell, and I'm hopeful that um, their experience can be replicated by other jurisdictions. Okay, uh, thank you. You did, I, I want to note this, uh, you did note uh, the slow but somewhat increasing use of unarmed professionals 
say, clinical social workers to respond yeah. to calls when there appears to be a mental health or behavioral health issue. Just as an aside, I was jawing with Washington, D.C. police officers on a corner for other reasons. I brought this up about social workers, and let's just say the response I received from a sergeant was nothing less than contempt. Um, <laughs> so in any event, um, two others um, quickly. Um you don't mention and you don't mention FOIA, and I was I, I thought I might see that somewhere. I, um, do you believe that Freedom of Information Act requests would be at all helpful? Oh well, they're they're helpful. <laughs> they are uh, extremely helpful um, to better understand uh, what's actually happening mm-hmm. in, in local jurisdictions. And Freedom of Information, <coughs> excuse me, Freedom of Information Act. Requests are the are the requests that that the name typically given to, to those for um, seeking information from federal agencies, and then public records requests to state and local governments. And much of the research that I have done over the past ten to fifteen years has been relying on Public Records Act requests to try to get information about how cases how how who pays when when cases are successful about how local governments budget for and pay these cases. Um, Without the Public Records Act powers, I would never have been able to get that kind of information. Um, And I think that using these uh, tools that we have to demand information from governments um, is, is one of the very best available ways of really understanding um, how these, uh, how, how the laws work on the ground and um, whose rights are being affected and whether we have a system that's working the way we want it to. Okay. Just maybe my last question, and I saved this for last. Um, and this gets at how weaponized or militarized police departments are I'll just as an aside, I worked on the Hill for the Congress, and every time I walked in and out of the Capitol, I passed people who were unbelievably, I mean, we're talking automatic M16s, shotguns, uh, stun grenades. I mean, in fact, that's why I really, to be candid, I really never fully understood January 6th, considering how how armed the Capitol Police are. And I'm not going to say for good or for, they just are, okay? And we know... um, the U.S. has a, a profound number of handguns, et cetera, more than probably any other, if not in fact, more than any other Western or rich country. And, you know, the basic is the more guns you have, the more guns you use. What, to any extent, is this um, is this a problem because of how uh, militarized, weaponized police departments are? And is there any opportunity to solve the problem by addressing that issue? Well, I think that, that police, you know, the, the wep- I, I think there's a couple of questions, and that's a, it's a big question sure. um, to to tackle. But you know, I think that there is some questions about the militarization of the police, and you know, the provision of <laughs> of tanks and um, other kinds of military gear that, mm-hmm. um, and often, you know, in cases where where the departments don't actually really know how to use the gear they have where I think there has been a, a real recognition that uh, there should be a, a pullback of that kind of authorization of, of military force by, by departments. Separately, <coughs> separately, police departments are 
uh, and officers are armed with very powerful uh, non, you know, non-military, perhaps military grade, like like the automatic weapons that, um, uh, you know, that seem quite extreme. Um, although when we have those when 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 those kinds of weapons are um, purchasable by, you know, everyday citizens, mm-hmm. It's very understandable to me why um, why police would also want to have equally powerful um, equally powerful weapons to be able to uh, you know combat the, the the possibility that somebody's going to have that kind of um, weapon on them. So I think that that part of the issue with um, police force and police violence and police killings is connected to the availability of guns in our country and and you know as so long as we have um you know the interpretations of the second Second amendment Amendment, that we have and people are able to buy these weapons with extraordinary powers uh you know from walmart or wherever then we're going to have a situation where police uh need to be armed up you know equally and so um i think that this is a a bigger problem than than uh, simply about the the officer's choice of weapons. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's the weapons that we allow everyone in our country to have. Okay, thank you. So literally, an arms race. Exactly. Um, so uh, with that, Joanna, thank you for your time. We're at our about our our limit. I appreciate the overview of the book. Very informative. I think an important work, important read. Although again, as I noted, uh, very sobering. <laughs> um, but I wish you every success with it. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.